And there are a few verses I'd like to read concluding that chapter. We're going to start with verse 14, the, the B portion or second half of 14 and read through the end of the chapter. And uh, we, we, we just, as far as this, is just going to be like a Messiah mission report. But 2 Corinthians 10, verse 14, it says, For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. And verse 16 is the key there, to preach the gospel in regions beyond you. So let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you. We, we're so grateful to be able to come back to America safely, without any difficulty. And we're, we're so glad that your grace was there to help us as we minister the word of God and for the, the, the wonderful things that took place. So, God, just tonight as we share and get into the word a little bit, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. So this was the, the first time that I had gone to the land of the Maasai. And you've probably seen documentaries of them or something in the National Geographic. They're the ones that wear the, the, uh, the, the red robes and dresses. And you've seen the ladies, they have the the different rings around their neck going up real high. And the, the gentlemen, they have those different size earrings they put in there to really stretch the earlobe. So this is where I went. And I, and I have to be honest, I wasn't sure what to expect when I got there. But the, the night I landed, the uh, pastor, Bishop Karani, picked me up from the airport. We went to where I was going to stay that evening. And he started prepping me for where we were going to drive four hours from Nairobi. And, and one of the first things he said to me, he said, now you've got to understand, Daryl, that, that these folks, um, they, they don't dress like you folks do in the West. He said, there's a very good chance you may have people come to the meeting that may not have any clothes on. He said, they, he said, they probably won't be nude, but he said, there, there'll be some coming out of the bush that don't have a lot of clothing at all. Fortunately, we didn't, that, that wasn't an issue at all. They were all fully dressed. But as we made the drive from Nairobi, going to the land of Maasai, the, the last hour and a half, because we had to take a turn to make our way towards that area, and the, one of the things that caught my attention was that the closer we got to the land of the Maasai, the fewer cars I saw. So we're talking about an hour and a half drive, and I didn't see but five cars, and probably three of them were broke down along the side of the road. When, when we got close to the village, it was a village called Kimana, or Kimani, and the, I was struck by these little eight- and nine-year-old children that I saw playing out in the bush. They're just out in the desert area. Now, this was kind of like if you've seen those pictures of the, the ones that live out in the desert, and they, have, they don't have any water, any rivers, or anything, and they go and they dig up some shrub in the desert, and then they cut it. And then they squeeze drops of water out of it. This is that kind of environment and these kinds of uh, situations that we were dealing with. But the little kids were playing out in the bush area, having a wonderful time. And just 10 to 15 feet away from them were giraffes and elephants. 
and, and when I say 10 to 15 feet away, I'm, I'm saying just, just right here where, where you folks are. And these kids are just playing like it's not a problem at all. And the, the parents later told me, well, this is how we grow up. I mean, we're, we're surrounded by these animals all the time. And, and they let me know that in, in the middle of the night, of course, uh, because many of them out in the bush don't have restrooms in the hut or in the house. I mean, if the kids go to the restroom in the middle of the night, everybody has to go with them because of the leopards and because of the lions and things like that. So I, I, I was sitting there listening to all of this, and I, I was just thinking, you know, this seems like something out of a movie, but here, here is how people are living every single day. It was a wonderful, wonderful time out there, even though it was very warm. It was, uh, it was 100 degrees every day, and it was also 95 degrees or so in my hotel room because we didn't have any air conditioning at all. Th their customs are a little bit different, and I'll explain this as I share how the uh, churches began. The, the Maasai tribe, they're, they're known across Africa as a very fierce warrior-like group of people, and amongst themselves, amongst the African, about the only people they think that are somewhat comparable to them would be the Zulu down in South Africa. But the Maasai tribe in East Africa, they're the only tribe that never was subjugated by the West, nor did slave catchers ever get one of theirs and sell them into slavery. For a couple of centuries, when all of that was going on, whenever somebody came near their territory that was of any kind of Anglo background, they, they just incapacitated them so that they just never made it back to where they were uh, coming from. So when, when, when we got there, I, I was the first black missionary pastor ever from the outside to come speak to these people. They have never had anybody from the West that they let in to come and address them as far as the gospel. Uh, they're very isolated, and they just have not wanted to have anything to do with the West. In fact, some of these people in the Maasai tribe, even though the, the two languages of Kenya is Swahili and English. Some of them knew neither of those languages. They only knew Maasai. It's kind of like some people on Indian reservations here that never learn English but just strictly know their Indian dialect. The bishop who hosted us was a man by the name of Bishop Patimo. And this man was a former Maasai warrior for 10 years out in the bush. Now this, this is, I started asking questions about this because this is, I heard about this for a long time so I wanted to know I said, tell me all about this whole thing about killing lions and stuff in order to prove your manhood. He said, oh, that, that's only part of it. He said, if, if, if you reach an age of 13 or 14 and it's your desire to be recognized in your tribe as an elder and you want to be a Maasai warrior, you must go live in the bush for 10 years. That's not living in a hut. You can't be in any kind of dwelling place that's under the stars every single night, dwelling by the bushes, up under the bushes. You can find a cavern or some, dig a hole or something like that for yourself. But he said, during that 10-year period, you must kill the big five animals that are out there. You've got to kill the rhino, the, the buffalo, the elephant, the uh, lion, and the leopard. And he said that the leopard counts twice as, as well as the lion because he said the leopard is so agile when you go up against him. And he said, when you go up against one of those animals, you've got to kill it yourself. He said, the warriors are not going to help you. He said, they may help you track it, 
But it, it's you that has to be the one to go and do that. So I'm listening to this gentleman who's probably 53, 54 as he's telling me this. And, 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 and he's got these big, long, you know, the earlobes and all that stuff. And, and, and I wanted to know, I said, well, if you were a Maasai warrior, how did you get out of that? How did you become a Christian? He said, well, remember, he said, we didn't allow anybody from the West to come into this area. But he said some 30 years ago or so, he said a, a Kenyan preacher came out in the bush where we were and started preaching the gospel to us. Just came way out in the desert. And he said that man preached and he said I was so touched by what he said. Under conviction, he said I became a Christian. He said the first one in this area. He said, once I became a Christian, I knew that I was a, had been a sinner and everything. So he said, I knew that everything I believed was wrong. I said, well, what is the Maasai people? What is their ancestral religion? He said, we don't have an ancestral religion. He said, every generation must create their own religion, their own God. So he said, once I became a Christian, I cut all of my long hair, because Maasai warriors had that for religious purposes. And he said he immediately started having meals with some of the ladies in the village. Because it's part of their custom that if you're a Maasai warrior, you're not allowed to eat with women. Because if women look upon the meat that you're going to devour, just them looking at it defiles the meat. That's what they believe. So he said once he became a Christian, God helped him to see that we're all the same. And that he shouldn't, he shouldn't have this kind of segregated lifestyle from the people of, of the opposite sex. He said, so the Maasai warriors ostracized him. He was put out of his village. His family wouldn't talk with him any longer. And he said he was pretty much on his own. He had to go stay with another Maasai tribe in, a, in another area because of how they were treating him. He said if he was in a room and his own family, and these people walked in, he said they saw him, they just turned their back and just walk out or they would walk to the other side of the hut and just sit with their backs to him. He said this was all because of the fact that he accepted Christ as his Savior. So I said, well, Bishop Patimo, how, how, how did you survive? I mean, what, how, what kind of encouragement did you get? He said, well, I didn't get a whole lot. He said, but I did hear about a gospel meeting that was taking place in a nearby village, so I walked there. I said, well, nearby village? He said, yeah, it was only 45 miles away. So he said, I just walked through the bush 45 miles one way to get there. And he said, I sat there, heard the message, and realized that if Jesus' disciples could pass through the difficulties they passed through, that I could also maintain my faith in God. So he said, despite the fact my family and my tribe and village was now shunning me, he said, I went right back to where they were, and he said, I started trying to witness to them. He said it was difficult. A lot of them didn't want to hear, but he said in the end he led five to the Lord. He said from those five, he said he ended up with a little church. He started with them, and it grew to about 30. And he said from those 30, he said he, in the last 30 years, has been able to start more than 100 churches in that area. And so I was absolutely astonished that this man had did that. He told me that they're, they're church people. They, some of them don't even have buildings. They meet around a tree. He said there will be 100 of them around a tree worshiping God, and um, he told me that uh, when they go into these different villages, sometimes they'll stand in a flatbed truck and begin to try to preach to the people, and, 
And there's so many of them now that have become Christian just because of this one man and his disciples that it's a lot easier now. So these folks are ripe for the gospel. So they invited me and Bishop Karani, and I should say they invited Bishop Karani, and Bishop Karani invited me to go. And when we showed up there on the grounds, I got to that little village, 15,000 people. They said the church is out in the bush. We're going to have to take a drive out there. It was about six to eight miles out in the bush. There are no roads, no trails. And it took about an hour or so just to drive, bumping all the way uh, through there. We got there, and we're going to have five services a day, five services a day. Now, I've, I've, I've preached in a lot of, a lot of good camp meetings. And one time in California, I was preaching, and while I was preaching, uh, just in the, the back of where we had the camp meeting ground, there was a, a mama bear, black bear, and her cubs. They were just just watching all the things that were taking place. But I'd never been in a situation like this. We pulled up in, in that truck, and we got out, and, and I saw all of these people. I mean, a thousand women had come from all over the place. Some of these women had walked 20 miles one way through the desert with nothing but machetes and spears to come to this meeting where, where, where we were uh, gathered. And I, and I looked <clears throat> off in the corner, and I saw about nine Maasai men standing over by a tree, and they had just, they had just killed a, a big water buffalo. That's 1,400 pounds of meat. I went in for the first service. That buffalo was down, and, I mean, they're taking off horns, and they're dealing with that, that critter. I came out after the second service. They had skinned that thing by the end of the next service they had cut up all of that meat and it was on a grill and they're going to feed a thousand or more people with all of that meat now you know that kind of meat not going to go far with a thousand people so all of us ended up with a little piece of meat about maybe that round and about maybe that thick but oh it was delicious folks it really was delicious they, they don't eat vegetables they don't eat vegetables it's all meat some potatoes, and some broth. The average Maasai person only has meat when there's some kind of a special occasion, like what we had. And for dessert, we had some papaya and watermelon. So nobody does cakes, pies, no sugar, no chocolate, or nothing like that in, in, in a world like this. But, but I sat down, and, and between Fan and the 1,500 flies that were trying to eat with me and, and just trying to devour my food, I'm sure I lost some weight while I was over there. Because I, I didn't have anything that could put anything on. I think I was telling John or somebody earlier, I said, they don't feed you over there till you're full. They just feed you enough to keep you alive. That's, that's, that's how, the, how the meal was. The services were absolutely amazing. A thousand people crammed into a tabernacle fits only about maybe five or six hundred people. And I had plenty of pictures, but unfortunately when we left the house this morning, I didn't realize we were going to take the long way and end up in Lincoln and come back here. It was our plan to go back to the house, get the pictures, and bring them here so that you could have, have seen uh, the, the ministry that we had amongst the people. They asked me specifically to teach on women in the Bible and women in the ministry. The Maasai tribe is very patriarchal. So outside of Christianity, there's a, there's a way they treat women that's not always so nice, but in Christ, it's a whole lot better in the kingdom of God. But they wanted to learn about God's plan for women in regards to ministry. 
Well, inside that tabernacle, all of these women, it was the first service in my life I ever stood in where I've got women that are holding spears and machetes. And, and, and those rings that go around their neck, that first ring that, that, that they place on the neck when she's a little girl, that is a ring that designates she's engaged. The parents typically arrange the marriages of the kids when they're about four or five. They just they never meet their spouse until the day of the wedding. And it's usually somebody from a, a different Maasai tribe that lives in an entirely different region. So I started teaching and, and I was walking them through the scriptures, showing them from Genesis through Re- Revelation that even though the tabernacle was under the dominion of men, God still used women over and over again to prophesy uh, people like Deborah to lead them out in battle. I showed them how Deborah sat up under the palm tree or the tree of Deborah and how not only the women, but the men came to her for counsel, for judgment. So I said, God's never had a problem with women counseling men or offering advice. You know? and, and, and then I explained to them, by the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the high priest. The church becomes the temple. The Old Testament temple is is done away with so that now that male dominated institution no longer is of value because it's a spiritual thing now. And then I spent several, several uh, sessions dealing with 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about women praying and prophesying. And 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, let women be silent in the church. So I had to help them understand what Paul is dealing with there. Because why would Paul say in one place women can speak in church, but in another place they can't? Then I had to teach them about 2 Timothy 2, where Paul says, I suffer not a woman to teach. And I had to help them to see that's not talking about church activity. None of that has anything to do with the organization of how we do things in a church. Paul is addressing specific aspects of that Diana cult in the midst of Ephesus, where you had that strong feminist spirit. And the scripture talking about, I suffer not a woman to usurp authority over a man. In the Greek, is usurp the authority of a man. Now, God in the marriage established the husband as the head. That's true. That doesn't change. That, that's the way it is. But we we wanted them to see that just because you're a woman, you don't have to be subject to every man. My wife, Scripture says, I'm the head of my wife. I'm not the head of every woman in here. No, no, no. And the husbands that are married are the head of their wives. They're not the head of every woman in in, in any location. The, The only way or reason I would be the head of anything would just simply be as a pastor overseeing people. So we helped them to see that, and I could see the lights going on as as they were listening to this. And these ladies were so excited. I mean, they were dancing. They were praising God all around that tabernacle. Folks, we had one service where I taught on the gifts of the Spirit. And I said, if, if there are any of you in here that, that, that would like God to use you in that manner, because God uses women also, as it shows in the Scripture, I said, I want you guys, you ladies, to come forward. Folks, everybody in the tabernacle, responded to the altar call. All 1,000 women came forward. They told me after they'd never, ever in their lives seen anything like that. The preachers that I was with, I had them come down. We start praying for people. Uh, These ladies, they they were reaching out, grabbing for my coat. 
reaching out, just trying to touch my shoulder. One by one, these ladies were just falling down on the floor. Now, they remember, they never had any meetings with anybody from the West. There's no Christian television out there. Nobody taught them any of this. These folks were just falling as the Spirit of God was on them. They were crying out for God. At, at the end of another service, we decided just to, to pray for the sick. There's too many people to come down to try to lay hands on them. So we just had them out there, and we just prayed for people as, as they were out there. I had my eyes closed. I, we were dealing with everything, deafness, blindness. All I heard was screaming and yelling as God was moving amongst these people. The bishop got up afterwards, Bishop Patimo, who's the Messiah bishop, the service went about maybe three and a half to four hours. They, these people wouldn't leave. They just wanted to keep talking about what God was doing. And, and the bishop stood up there and he said to the people, he said, look, there's a Messiah proverb that says, if you talk, if you talk to the beloved, even the unloved will hear what you're having to say. Now, there were only seven or eight men in that meeting. And, and what he was teaching by that proverb was this. If, if you talk to people that you love and that you care about and you share good news with them, even the people that are just standing around or sitting around, you can hear the conversation and they'll end up blessed by it. And he was saying that here, even though so many of these ladies came out just for a women's meeting, here were a handful of men there, and he said it so blessed them to be able to be a part of that. In this meeting, after two days, when we left, I think we left on a, on a Friday morning, we had a 13-hour drive to make. The people were supposed to shut the meeting down that morning. The night before, when we left at midnight to go back to the hotel, these ladies never left. They stayed all night long praying and fasting and dancing in that sanctuary. It, had it not been for the bishop, I don't know if we would have made it out of the bush back to our hotel. I mean, it gets dark out here. And if you turn the lights out on one of these country roads, you, you can't see anything. But I mean, we, we had flashlights out there. It was so dark you couldn't see anything. The, the evening services, the, the, the last service of the day usually started at 8 o'clock at night, went to midnight. In that service, in a tabernacle with a 1,000 people, we had two light bulbs. And they were hanging over the people. The, the, the Bishop Karani had to stand up there and preach the gospel with a flashlight hanging over his Bible. I was sitting behind him. If he would have turned and looked, at me in the pulpit, he wouldn't have been able to see me. It was so dark in there. And from where I was on the pulpit, the only faces I could see were the ones directly beneath the light bulbs. I couldn't see the hundreds of people that were all the way in the back. But I'm telling you, God moved amongst those people as Bishop Karani ministered, and they wept and they cried. I had a meeting with the bishop and his presbyters. There were nine of them. And we, we sat in this room after we had lunch. And I wanted to know what this was going to be about. You know. And they wanted to officially thank me for coming out there and then wanted to know if it was possible for them to have a, uh, some kind of relationship with, 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 uh, with me here in America. And, and I told them, I said, look, I can't make a whole lot of monetary promises to you, but I said, I can tell you this, you've got a friend in America. You've got a friend in America with all that I've seen around here. And so the monies that you folks gave me, and then the monies that I received from Red Cloud, I, I had a bunch of, and, and even friend, I, I had a bunch of envelopes. And I took all of that money, and, and I divided that up. 
in those envelopes. And in that meeting with the presbyter, I'd given the money to the bishop so the bishop could bless these preachers. Now, now listen, I, I'm, I was preaching to the first generation of men that wore trousers. See, these folks had never wore pants in their life. I'm first generation I'm preaching to those men. They only had one suit. And, and, and the average pastor in that room, I asked them, how much money, through an interpreter, how much money do, do you folks make as pastors with your people? I mean, some of them have 100 people. They only make $18 a month. You know? And <clears throat> so when, when, when that, the bishop was giving them this money, $50, $55, $60 per person and so on, different, different people, I mean, they just began to cry. They just began to cry. They said, how, how, how could anybody who, who doesn't even know us show us this kind of love and, and come from the other side of the world and, and, and give us this? And I said, it's not me. I said, it's these good people that I, that I pastor and these good people that believe in us. They're, they're the ones that make it possible for me to come over here and have anything to give to you. Something like that, folks, goes a long way. Three, three months, four months, sometimes salary it makes it possible for a pastor a bishop there to give to a few more of his preachers or to feed his family. They, they told me when it was all over, they said, Pastor Darrell, they said, this, this is the greatest meeting we've had amongst the Messiah ever. I mean, it extended two more days even after we left because the women wouldn't leave. They stayed in that tabernacle, folks. They stayed in there dancing and praising God to, to, to celebrate how happy and excited they were. They, they brought me and Bishop Karani up in front of the people, and they had made for us some Maasai shirts, some hand-stitched shirts. And one of the Kenyan guys were telling me, he said, you hold on to that. He said, those things are very expensive out here in the market because they make those, and they don't give them to just anybody. And, 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 and they, put, they, they put it on me, but they didn't have the size right. So here I've got these wide shoulders, and they put that on. And we spent about 10 minutes trying to squeeze me into that. And, and, and when I got into it, I was just trying to just breathe in such a way that I didn't take in a deep breath because I might burst it. Well, Bishop Karani has a belly bigger than mine, and they made his shirt smaller than mine. His was so small when he put it on him, he could hardly breathe. And we got back to the hotel. I had to help him take it off. That's how it was. And, and, and then they gave me this red robe to wrap, wrap around, one of those Messiah robes that you see in the, the documentaries and stuff. And, and then they started up the music. And then, then, then Pastor Darrell had to do the Maasai dance. I mean, they, they just kind of shake and they do their head like this. And, and you know, you can see a thousand people doing that. Oh, my. They had the time of their life and I so enjoyed it. So four weeks from now, they have an outdoor crusade there again with Bishop Karani. They're expecting over 5,000 people. And I had called from Kenya because that, what I was doing was preparatory for that meeting. And I had called because I had thought about flying back over there. And uh, I, I told him, I said, well, you know, I, I, I can get here. But Bishop Crony said, look, I tell you what, this will be our first outdoor crusade with them. There's a whole lot I'm sure we're going to do wrong. We don't want you stumbling around us as we're making mistakes. But he said, in December, he said, that's when we can do it again, December. So in December... Tiff and I are going to go back over there. We have a big citywide meeting we're going to do where, just like the Dead Pentecost, we're going to get all these churches together and pray for people, just like in Acts chapter 2 
and then we're going to go back to the Maasai, and they're expecting more than 15,000 for that one. Big outdoor crusade. So we, we thank you, and we appreciate the fact that you guys make it possible for us to go there and have something to give these people. Oh, I wish I could, you know, if, if it wasn't for the fact that it would be somewhat embarrassing to them, I'd take pictures of, of them as they're receiving the gifts, you know, just putting it in their hands. So much that we ourselves take for granted, but yet so much that God has, has done for them. To, to take a tribe like that, and there are four different regions of them, but to, to allow us to be the first ever to get into that region was a wonderful thing. I was so impressed by that. I wanted to see more and more. They, they took us across the border. We went into Tan, Tanzania just to see the Maasai over there in the adjacent country, to see how they live over there and to see how they gather together. But, folks, it was a, it was a beautiful time, and I am so glad that we were able to do that. And if, if the Lord ever provides an opportunity for you to travel or go anywhere, oh, my, it's always good to go. Always good. If no other reason, just to see God's people. Just to see God's people. Okay, so I'll tell you what we're going to do now. For a little while, let's go over to the book of Acts. and Let's go to chapter 12. The book of Acts, chapter 12. And if we have any questions, we'll do with them afterwards. But, but just briefly, I want to teach you on one word, and that word is commitment. We've all heard that before, commitment. Acts chapter 12, look at verse number 12. This is talking about Peter being delivered from jail. When he considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. So this, this, this word commitment. You've heard people say about different people, they have commitment issues. They don't want to be uh, dedicated or give themselves to someone or something. In this instance here, John Mark is the, the son of a woman who is totally committed to Christ, to the church, to the apostles, and to prayer. To be committed is to be devoted or dedicated. You give your time your energy and your resources. That's what John Mark's mother is doing. She's committing her time, her energy, and her resources. How is she committing her resources? She's allowing her home to be used as a place of prayer. She's committed to it. And she's not going to let anything change that. Even though James lost his life for the cause of Christ, Peter, having been apprehended because they thought that the seeing that the Jews would be pleased, they thought that if they killed Peter, everybody else would be happy. But the people, they gathered together at the lady's house and prayed. Now, those are committed people. I would like to think that if something like that happened to you or me and we were incarcerated, that maybe somebody would say, let's have a prayer meeting and just believe God and pray until God comes. That, that may mean we have to stay in one location and pray. Somebody may have to bring in meals and food. But... These people came and they prayed. And so John Mark, having a mother like that, you know the influence that that had to have upon him. You know, she, she was influential. And we know mothers have that kind of influence because Paul wrote to Timothy and said, remember the faith that was in your grandmother and the faith that was in your mother. So John Mark grew up in an in a atmosphere of the miraculous. 
Peter's knocking on the door. An angel just delivered him from jail. So this man understands that God is real. God is true. God does supernatural things. People are here praying. Wonders are taking place. And he sees commitment in his mother. Now, if you look at chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, it tells us in the church there are numerous people. But it mentions Barnabas and Saul, who we call Paul. It says, as they ministered to the Lord, the Spirit of God spoke to the church in verse 2 and said, separate Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Say those names with me. Barnabas and Saul. Those two were called to the work. Because it says in verse 2, for the work whereunto I've called them. God calls different people to go to different places to do different things, but we all have the same message. No matter where we go. They fasted, laid hands on them and sent them away. And notice verse five. They had John Mark as their minister. Now, the word minister in this context does not mean that he was their private chaplain. It means he was their helper, assistant, servant. And I think it's Exodus. Moses goes to the top of the mount for 40 days. He's up there in the presence of the Lord. And it says he took with him Joshua, who was his minister. That's not his private preacher, servant, his helper. So John Mark's role then was to help Paul and Barnabas in whatever help that they needed. And so they set sail from what we would today call Lebanon and headed to the island of Cyprus. It's about 200 or so miles. And I'm sure they were all quite happy and quite pleased to be able to be together in the fellowship. It says in chapter 13, beginning with verse number six, they worked their way through verse 12. They worked their way across the island, a sorcerer trying to stop the gospel from changing the life of one man. He was fighting against them. The scripture says in verse 11, Paul spoke to him and said, the hand of the Lord is upon you. So the, the sorcerer practicing witchcraft, he went blind as the power of God came upon him. Now, don't be surprised at that. I, I, I think I may have shared this in time past, but I was in our church in Cleveland, Ohio one time. This is the first time I'd ever in my life heard of something like this. I, I attended a church called Full Gospel Assembly. The pastor was Joseph Frano. He's still a minister. His son, Doug, pastors that church now. But I was sitting in our chair. It was a former Jewish synagogue, and Jewish synagogue chairs have numbers on them. So I was sitting in my chair. There's a lady here and next to the lady is a man and the man is married to the woman here. <clears throat> and the pastor said, it's praise and testimony time. Is there anybody who'd like to get up and share testimony to the glory of God? Well, of course, you know, you, you say something like that. You don't know what you're going to get. when People stand up, whether it's going to really be edifying or whether it's going to put a damper on the service. But but this this gentleman here on the other side, he was blind. This man stood up in that service, and there had to be 150 of us in that morning service, and he said, Pastor, I'd like to stand up and testify. And, and Pastor just looked at him and said, okay, say on. And, and the man, he, he, he started in, he said, for a long time I was a drunkard. He, he's blind now, he 
He said, I was a drunkard, and he said, I didn't want to hear anything about God, and my wife was a Christian and came out here to church and said, I'd come home, and my wife would talk to me about God in the middle of the night, and I'd get mad at her, and I'd cuss her, and sometimes I'd, I'd even put my hands on her. Now, he's saying this in front of the whole church, and I'm, I'm just like, oh, my Lord. And, and I'm sure the wife wasn't too right with, with, with all this being said in church, you know. I just, oh, my. And, and he goes on. And, and, and he said, and, and, and every night that I would come in drunk, she'd start in on this Jesus stuff, and I didn't want to hear it. He said, one night I came in, and she was right there at that front door again with that Bible, quoting scripture, telling me I need to surrender my heart to the Lord, and, and, and so on and so on and so on. And he said, I said to her that night, he said, I said to her as I was stumbling through that house, if your Jesus is real, and if there is a God, may I wake up blind tomorrow morning. He stumbled in there to that bed, laid down, woke up that next morning and did not have his vision. And as he was standing there telling that story, he still was blind. Folks, chills just kind of went through that whole congregation as they were listening to that, you know. So I think here in Acts chapter 13, when this man went blind, verse 12 says the deputy saw it and immediately he believed and was astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. I'm sure that deputy was thinking, oh, my word, what is going on here? A, a miracle of judgment. But with all of this going on, you, you would think these, these are exciting times. I mean, the, the apostles are preaching People are being saved. Good things are happening. But in verse 13, it says concerning John Mark that, that John, after they took the boat going to Pamphylia, which is southern Turkey today, he departed from them and returned to Jerusalem in the middle of what God was doing. He left. He sailed with them another hundred miles from Cyprus to the other place, and then something happened. I don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't detail it or give us any kind of information, but something caused him to lose his focus, and he turned and left them. And you know it had to be something big, because later on, there's going to be trouble when Barnabas says, let's take him again. Now, now here's what I, I want to uh, bring up. In verse 5, John was their minister. You can't have any kind of ministry if you don't have help. It's impossible. You, you can't do anything on a job here in Hebron if you don't have people to help you. you. You can't do anything. So it's the same thing with the gospel. That's what ministry is. People share a vision. People share their desires. What they believe, what they want to see God do. People hear that. And, and when people hear that, their hearts are touched sometime. And they say, you know what? I want to help. I want to help. But how is it that some people can commit to something and then lose their focus and turn and leave? That's what John Mark did. He told Paul and Barnabas, I'm with you. I'll travel with you. I'm going to aid you. Good things are going to happen. He was on board. And then all of a sudden something happened on Cyprus or something happened when he got to southern Turkey. He turns around and goes back to Jerusalem. What's back in Jerusalem? Mama's house. The prayer meeting. He goes back home. But verse 14 is just as important. Look at the first sentence. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch, Pisidia. That means that even though John Mark left, they kept going. Now, we, we have a little saying in English here. We say the show must go on. 
So when your kids have been in plays or some kind of school production, maybe it happened to your kid, maybe it didn't, maybe somebody else's kid, and, and let's say that the kids are up on stage and behind the curtains, and, and all of the people from town have come out and they're in the auditorium. And then the kids, somebody come and peeks around the curtain to see who's out there in the auditorium, see if mom is there. And they look and see not only mom, but hundreds of other people. Then little kids' knees start knocking because they're terrified that they got to get up there in a choir or, or go out there and, and, and act out a role or something like that. And sometimes the kid will say, I'm not going out there. I mean, the teacher's running back and forth behind the scenes trying to get, get the kid to go, and the kid's like, I'm not going. And you know what happens? Somebody else has to fulfill that role because the show has to go on. Same thing with football, basketball, any other sport. You have people out there in the stands. The referees are out there on the field. Somebody breaks an arm, a leg, fractures something, pulls a muscle. Somebody else has to step into the place and keep on going. Paul and Barnabas did not fall down in a fetal position and cry and weep because John Mark left. They kept traveling and kept preaching. Commitment is absolutely essential. All of us during our Christian lives have met people at one point or another who committed themselves to the way of Christ, but some way or another turned. Yeah, you've met people who committed themselves to churches or people. You stand up in front of somebody and say, to death do you part, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, sickness and health. But somewhere, the commitment is lost. The focus falls away. So this, this man, John Mark, left them. They continued to travel and preach. When we come to the end of chapter 14, verse number 27, after this first missionary journey, they return to the church that sent them out and they give a report. Now, this, is, this is so important. They give a report, verse 27. Whatever it is that anybody does for God, I think they should let people know what they're doing and what God is doing. Yeah, very important. And I've always felt, even in my travels, People often want to know, why, why do you tell so many stories and, and stuff like that? Because people need to know what's going on. If you don't tell them, how are they are going to know? They won't know. They went back to the church that sent them out and said, let me tell you everything that God did for us as we were out there traveling. And it says how the Lord opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And that's exactly what took place. God opened the door of faith. And that's why I took the time to share with you about, about the Messiah. That door is wide open, folks. Wide open. Thousands of them that are hungry for God. in Hundreds of churches. Well, this is what Paul and them did. I've always felt that in missions, we, we, we want to know what people are doing. And like I've told so many people, if... If we're going to give thousands of dollars to help people and support people, then from time to time somebody needs to follow that money out there and make sure it's doing what it's designated to do. Rather than, and even in our organization, I'm sure this is, is true too, because I'm, I'm on the board of a group called World Ministry Fellowship, and we've got preachers all, all around the world, and we, we give towards missions that way too, but there are administrative costs when it comes to stuff like that. I understand that. And uh, people out there are, are doing different things. But I, I've always felt somebody needs to go see. Yeah. If, 
if you don't put that kind of money into an area, you need to go out there and see. And I've heard people say, well, the money you put in the ticket, you can give to the people. You're right, but it's better to go out there and see and know that it's being used for what it's supposed to be used for. If I stand in front of people and say, look, we're giving towards Kenya and we're blessing people or, or anything else, I, I want to be able to look people in the eye and, and, and have an honest face and say, I can guarantee every dime is going to where it's supposed to be. See, that, that, that's how that works. So after they gave the report then, in, in chapter 15, if we come down to verse 36, Paul said, you know what, Barnabas, we should go back to the people that we preached to and let's go check on them and see how everything's going with the word of God. And Barnabas said, that'll be fine. Chapter 15, verse 37. But he said, you know, if we're going to go, we need to take my nephew, John Mark. I mean, he is my blood kin and I just can't turn my back on him. Colossians tells us that he, he is he is connected with me. But verse 38, Paul said, no, I don't think we ought to take him with us. Now, now here's the difference between Paul and Barnabas. I can understand both of their perspectives. Barnabas was a, a nurturer. He was a, a real mentor. When Paul became a Christian, the early disciples wanted to have nothing to do with him. They didn't even really believe he was saved. But Barnabas came and took Saul and introduced him to the apostles and said, look, he had a genuine experience on the road to Damascus. This man is really saved. Accept him. And the Bible says he went in and out amongst the disciples for a long time. And that's how Paul established his credibility. So that was the kind of a man that Barnabas was. He looked at a person's life, and character, and even if they had flaws and failures. He said we need to love them anyhow. And we can't just throw away the clay just because it's got a few problems in it. Look, he can still be remolded. And so you can understand his, his position because that we've all been there before. None of us in here are perfect. But then I also understand Paul. Paul was zealous. And Paul said, look, why, uh, why do you want to take him again? I mean, after all, we were out there the first time and he left us. The man has a quitting spirit. If he quit on us once, it's in him. He'll quit on us again. Why should we take the time to make all of these plans and preparations, go over into foreign countries, open doors for him, make provision for him, and then all of a sudden he decides he misses mama? And he wants to go back to Jerusalem, and we've got other churches we've got to go to. Paul was zealous. I can understand Paul's position also. Because if you've ever had people that quit on you or didn't do what you wanted them to do, then you have a hard time trusting that they'll do what's right again. My godfather was a man who was very good with his hands to build anything. So when I was about, oh, I guess I was about 10 or so, and, and he was putting on an addition to his house. So he, he, he said to my, my, my mom, he said, do you, do you mind if Daryl comes over and uh, helps as, as, we're, as I'm doing some of this carpentry and stuff? He can maybe bring me the skill saw and all this other stuff. He cut some stuff for me and all of that. So he, he, they, they dropped me off, and they told me that I, got, I have to be there two nights. So I already knew that. Well, my godmother was a very good cook. So my, my mind was in the kitchen rather than out there in that addition that he was, he was working on. <clears throat> so he, he, he had me going to get different pieces of, of wood and, and lumber and everything, bring it back. And, and one time he told me to go get something. I went in the kitchen and I stayed there. And I didn't come back. 
And, and so he came in there and he, he, he got me. And then he brought me back out there. And so I started working with him again. Then pretty soon I was back there in that kitchen again. And so he finished up the thing. He didn't mention it at all. Didn't, didn't, didn't want didn't to bother me or anything like that. I don't know what he told my mom. But I do know, I do know several years later he was, he was working on something else. And, and he was trying to repair his garage and I think going to do some shingling or something like that. But by now I was a teenager. And so I said to my godfather, I said, John, I said, I can come down there and help you. He said, no, thank you. No, thank you. I said, no, I'll be a good help. I'll, I'll come. He said, no, thank you. I don't want you to come down here at all. You don't have to do that. No, no. Well, you know why he didn't want me to come back? Because of how I acted when I was, when I was little, you see. Well, this, this, this man, Paul, he was, he, he was that way. The, the difference, though, is that, that Barnabas was related to him, and when you're blood kin with somebody, you have a tendency to tolerate a lot more of that kind of stuff than you would of other people, because my dad was just as good with his hands as my godfather was, and my dad always wanted me there to help him. Even when he knew I didn't want to be there, he always had me come back. I think commitment is important because Paul was so committed to the work that he couldn't commit himself again to the person. But Barnabas was committed not only to the work, but also to the person of his own flesh. Folks, don't throw anybody away. You never know what God can make of them. So real quick, like inside of just a few minutes, three things we can learn from this. Just looking at it in verse number 38. Paul didn't want to take him. Verse 39, the contention was so sharp. A person's lack of commitment can lead to contention. Arguments between other people. I'm sure in many churches there have been board members, pastors and their spouses and other people in the church who have argued about whether or not somebody was suitable for a particular task in the church because one person thought they had no commitment. Then another person said they're very committed. Sometimes our lack of commitment can produce a lot of dissension amongst Christians. The second thing. Your lack of commitment can cause two people who certainly were called by God to work together to go separate directions. I would hate to be the cause of division between two people that I know were called to be together. Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and 3 says the Lord spoke to the church as they prayed and fasted and said, separate Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them, the work I've called them. But now because of John Mark, the work to which he called them, now they're going their separate ways. That's what I'm trying to say. A lack of commitment can sometimes take people that are called to work together, cause them to work separately. But then it, it gets better. It says in the end of verse 39, Barnabas took Mark. It says in verse 40, verse 40, Paul chose Silas. So your, your lack of commitment can lead to someone else's advancement or promotion. You decide you don't want to do it. There'll be somebody else to step in there and do it. I, I guarantee you that. None of us should ever believe we are so vital to the plan of God that we are irreplaceable. If I fell over dead in this pulpit right now, there'd be somebody else up here teaching the next week. You see, it, this, this is the way it works. And it's a very humbling thing to realize 
that even if Paul takes Silas and Barnabas takes John Mark and they go their separate, separate ways, that, that God is demonstrating there's always somebody else that can do what you do. The, the best and brightest men who know everything about mechanics, who know everything about math, who know everything about economics, there's always somebody else who knows it just as well. And I've told you before, sometimes God, he, he has to cut down big trees in the forest so that the little trees can grow up and become big trees. Yeah. Sometimes God has to let the big trees become uprooted so that the little trees can grow up and become strong. And that is what happened here. Silas was commended by the brethren. He had a wonderful testimony amongst the saints. And now he finds himself traveling globally with a man of God by the name of Paul. Well, here's the end of the story. Even though Paul didn't want to have anything to do with John Mark, in 2 Timothy, we learn that Paul says in writing to one of his friends, please come and visit me, but bring John Mark with you because he's profitable to me for the ministry. Sometimes our perspectives change regarding people. You might think somebody's not worth much now, but later on in life, you might think they're very useful in the kingdom of God. And somebody who may not be so strong in their faith today, give them a little bit of time. They may show you something in the years to come, but just be ready to make use of them. Be committed to them as God was committed to us because none of us were ever perfect. But God committed himself to us so much that he gave his son his son committed himself to us in such a way that he gave his life. And now here we have the Holy Spirit working with us every day to help gather out a bride because one day Jesus Christ is going to come. If God can show that kind of commitment to us, why can't we show that kind of commitment to him? Yeah, commitment. The pastor on that Sunday morning in Kenya when I preached, he had a church of 600 people, only about 200, maybe less than that showed up. He was really distracted by it. I was trying to get his attention during the service. He said, he said, he said, Brother Darrell, I couldn't hear a thing you said. He said, I was busy looking at the parking lot wondering where my folks were at. You know why the people didn't come to church that morning in Kenya? It rained. I mean, it rained so hard that we were over in the, in the office, and to get from the office to the church, you had to go about maybe, a, maybe about 50 yards. And, I mean, that red clay mud, here we are in suits and everything like that. We stood there and waited for some teenagers to run over there with some umbrellas so we could run over there as fast as we could. We still ended up muddy because, I mean, running through potholes. There's no concrete or anything. But he said, he said, Daryl, he said, my people, he said, even though it's raining, he said, the ones in the cars didn't even drive up here. And he said, the people that walked to church didn't come. But he said, you know what? It's rainy season, and tomorrow morning it'll be raining as hard as it is right now, and every single one of them will be marching up and down the streets to go to their job. And they will not miss. And he said, Daryl, some of them are going to walk six miles one way to get to their job. Commitment. So I told him, I said, Bishop, I said, this isn't just a Kenyan plague. This is a plague around the world. I said, people have commitment issues all over the place. But folks, let's live for God in such a way that we don't have them. But be committed to Christ. Be committed to the way. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you tonight that your word is true. And when we think of commitment, we have to think of your son. 
Thank you for opening one door after another, Lord, for us to share your word, even, O oh God, as we've worked in Nebraska. We thank you and we honor you and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, 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 amen.